0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.
2: Hey babe, ride right with me. Give you a discount. I'll carry you my arms if you prefer. Hey Tiger. Don't you rickshaw guys work for tips? Is
3: a hundred bucks enough. <clears throat> Never trust a whore. <clears throat> <clears throat> Can't you forget who's holding the aces here, pal? I'm in deep shit, Daniel. Somebody got there before me. So, no, but it's all very suspicious. Ah, oh, shut up! I kill for a lot less.
2: He was born June 6, nineteen sixty-six. Look out!
4: Right. In comparison to the Chinese. We walk upside down. My cat and I have watched over you since your birth. The Chinese object you are holding contains the
2: story of your life, and the task divine will has entrusted to you. You're not leaving this place until you've told me everything I want to know. Pin murders on you in a flash.
3: I think I know where it is. What have you got in mind? I'm not sure. Nothing fits. Nothing makes any sense.
2: Joanna? I have to see you. You scream, I swear to God, I'm going to stick you with this thing, all right? You found it in the gutter. I'm sure you're familiar with AIDS. I only told the police what I saw. Then I'll touch it. It's only a cat.
0: You. Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Cullen Gallagher. Howdy. This week we are looking at Sergio Martino's American Tiger, also called American Rischio* or American Rickshaw. It's the story of Scott Edwards, played by Mitch Gaylord, a rickshaw driver in Miami, Florida, who becomes embroiled in a supernatural mystery involving VHS tapes, Asian mysticism, Jonestown, and
2: the Dark Lord Satan himself.
0: We'll do our best to untangle this sordid tale as we go along. I'm not sure if we'll be spoiling anything about this movie, because it's kind of a seeing-is-believing situation. So, Kat, when was the first time you saw American Tiger, and how long did it take you to pick your jaw up off the floor?
4: I was late to the party on this one. It was only a few years ago, but I've been obsessed with it ever since. As you know, with my badgering of you to... (laughs) projection booth episode on it
0: it's just bonkers cullen was this a first time watch for you
4: yeah i hadn't
1: even heard of it until you had mentioned it was a, an upcoming subject for the projection booth and based on martino's name alone i knew it would be amazing and amazing is kind of a word you can use for it i've run out of words trying to describe it it is cat as you said bonkers I'm now on my third viewing and I think I'm starting to put the movie
0: together. There might be several more viewings in the future. Kat, I am so glad you asked for this to be an episode because I had, I'd seen the cover at Blockbuster, but I never ventured into this
4: water and wow. I've been on a mission ever since so to get people to watch this film because it's just, well, same as you i 'd seen it around did 't really paid much attention I mean the cover 's not particularly inspiring and it 's just one of the and the and the title doesn 't really do it justice I mean American Tiger could be anything so it 's just one of those films that people tend to see and just think that doesn 't look very interesting and it 's like you 're missing out on possibly one of the best Martino films from this period people just seem to pass it by well we all have That's, but we're not alone whenever i post about this film which is quite often <laughs> it's always the same people are like oh god you know i've never watched this or i haven't heard of it or i saw this somewhere and didn't bother watching it it's weird
1: okay is there any chance that arrow might put it out on blu-ray since they've been releasing a lot of you know his movies and your book
4: not for the want of trying i don't know <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, I know. I've been on at them to do the Martino sex comedies as well. But but like I said, because it hasn't really got a cult following and it's relatively unheard of. It has just had a Blu-ray release in Germany, though. So that might tip the scales for someone else to pick it up. We basically need to use this episode as a manifesto to get someone in the English speaking domain to release this.
0: Someone should suggest it to Alamo Drafthouse if they haven't started screening it yet. Seeing this on Blu-ray would probably be something of a treat, because the version that I saw on Amazon Prime is right off of a VHS tape, to the point where the signal breaks up, there's a moment where it comes up on screen, like, you know, SP video kind of thing. The tracking goes. (laughs) The tracking. I'm like... And it looks like ass, but it kind of brings me back to that VHS era to the point where I thought that this was shot on VHS at first because of those horrible Chiron credits that open up this movie. Yeah. But no, this looks like it was shot on film after I watched it for a while. I, I got that. And definitely it's a, I mean, Florida is the perfect setting for this movie because it is so batshit crazy and because it's just these characters who are. Located in one spot and will never move from that one spot. Like, we've got this one character named Madame Luna who is through this entire movie, but other than the opening of this movie, we only see her in one room reacting to things. And it's like, I don't know how I keep thinking of like the behind the scenes stories of this movie because I'm like, okay, well, they probably had Madame Luna for. Or Madame Moon, she also goes by. She, they probably had her for, what, two days maybe? And then they had Donald Pleasance for like an afternoon. And that's about it. Because he's over on the, the other set, the set that where he looks like he's a TV preacher. And then cutting him in with stock footage of the audience of the TV preacher. <laughs> the editing in this
1: movie is something else. And I love noticing the way it cuts between different sets as you're saying mike and the relationships and questions that come up between those relationships
0: and there's audio that goes from one to another like madam moon has this cat and she also has a cobra and you'll hear the sound of the cat and the cobra over other scenes and they kind of bridge things
4: it's great
0: (laughs) this is the perfect movie to teach film students about film
1: grammar freshman film 101 american tiger
0: I do like the American Rickshaw cover better for this than the American Tiger cover because we're talking about the VHS cover. The American Rickshaw cover at least has this it's almost like an a hong kong horror movie type of feel with the cat hanging over things and the blue colors and stuff it just it it makes it a little bit more intriguing than the american tiger which just has mitch gaylord with his you know with his big guns out there like ready to to kick ass.
4: Miami just got hotter. Can you appreciate <laughs> that word? It looks like a soft porn. With, especially with the name Mitch Gaylord. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Mitch Gaylord. That is. No, not... We had to get that out early. The American cover doesn't really do it justice. It's, just, it's so seedy.
0: I'm trying to remember if we ever see Madame Moon, Madame Luna, with Mitch in the same scene, other than at the very beginning. Because otherwise, I think she's just cut into his life uh, until she becomes a young woman again.
4: There's the one scene towards the end. Is it? Aren't they in the same room when he? She tells the story of how. Oh, okay. It's only twice you see them together, though.
0: And that opening is just amazing. Miami in the sunshine and the rain at the same time, and all the slow motion as they go through. And yeah, he picks her up in his rickshaw. I don't remember being in too many cities that have rickshaws on the street here in the United States. I want to say San Diego. I. If I've been to Miami, I don't remember it, so I don't remember the thriving rickshaw scene, but that is definitely uh, a good way to get our main character to have these adventures because he is this rickshaw driver. Rickshaw driver by night, student by day.
4: Well, this is where Martino in his book said he got the idea from. watching. Was he in Miami? Uh, he was actually watching rickshaw, a young blonde Men ferrying the rickshaws around in America somewhere. So he got that idea. Um, from that, he gets American Tiger, which <laughs> how the hell he came up with that. But I love the fact that when you first meet the uh, Madam Moon and he's doing this little rickshaw thing, he just randomly tells her he was born in the year of the tiger because that's what I always do if I meet a Chinese person. I reveal my my horoscope to them. He also wasn't
1: born in the year of the tiger. The movie <laughs> said he was born in 1966, and I'm <laughs> against that later, so I looked it up online, and that was the year of the horse.
0: American horse doesn't have the ring to it.
1: I'm just imagining Mitch with that shirt, but instead of a tiger, it's a horse's head, <laughs> like Mr. Ed or something.
0: No, sir. I didn't like it. He is very proud that he was allegedly born in the Year of the Tiger because he owns a whole series of t-shirts that have tigers on them.
1: There's, there, there's another um, fact-checking that should have been done on this movie, which is that opening quote from Confucius.
4: Oh, God! What, what was that about?
1: That's the opening line of... I think that's from the, the Tao Te Ching. It's not Confucius. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I was actually born in Year of the Tiger. So if they ever do like a a sequel. British tiger. <laughs> I can get some tiger shirts. <laughs> I love his tiger shirts.
1: <laughs> a reboot? Yeah. Can okay, Martino direct it?
4: Yeah, Martino could still direct it. I should get on to him and say, come on, get someone who was actually born in you, this tiger. I mean, to be fair, it's a lot with all the whole mysticism in this, and there's a lot of it, I mean, they just go all over the place you've got a survivor from jonestown they're bringing in the 666 as well which i mean i'm no expert on chinese mythology but i don't think that number has any relevance there i mean it's all over the place which is wonderful
0: well it's kind of got that joke from saturday night live from all those years ago he doesn't have three sixes on his head it's three nines (laughs) (laughs) because he was looking at it upside down when they revealed that Mitch and Donald Pleasence's son were both born on June sixth, nineteen 1966. I was like, okay, this is obviously going to be some sort of Rosemary's Baby, Antichrist kind of stuff, and we're going to find out that mitch is actually the antichrist and that they were switched at birth and so really he is donald pleasance's son because the other guy was just kind of a punk weirdo who wanted to record people having sex
4: <laughs> i love that you had all these thoughts <laughs> You've started. oh
0: yeah i'm rewriting this whole movie in my head or writing where it's gonna go Nope, none of that happens Yeah, and this, I mean, his son, Donald Pleasance's son, so Donald Pleasance, like I said, he is a evangelical priest who shows up on TV all the time, and that's pretty much it. We just get the shots of him in one location. You know, he never seems to leave that area, which has a big stage on it, and so, yeah, his son, I guess, did he take this idol that gives maybe power to Donald Pleasance and Hides it in a locker at a train station? <laughs> yeah. Well, Madame Moon had
1: this took me three viewings and a lot of pausing and note taking to piece this together. But Madame Moon uh, well, she had had the urn of wisdom, which had the stone of the stone of evil, and the urn prevented the stone from its powers. Donald Pleasants stole the urn from Madame Moon, and then Madame Moon convinced the son Jason Mortem, who's not as evil as the dad, steal the urn, and but then instead of returning it to Madame Moon, he was just evil enough to think that he could blackmail his father into paying him to return it.
3: You're the Diet Coke of evil, just one calorie, not
2: evil enough.
1: What phone call? That's early on, isn't that like Donald is on? Like after he we meet him, he gets a phone call and someone says. Like the the packages at the location or something, and it's never really explained.
4: <laughs> A lot of things are never explained though, are they? I mean, no. why is the Sun just this weird pervert?
1: Coconut Grove, the influence? Um, I mean, He's <laughs> just like in his, his spare
4: ever- time, he just goes around, you know, videotaping in people in secret and trying to blackmail them and stuff. I'm not even sure if blackmail was what he was trying to do. He just, he's just like a a peeping Tom for the VHS era.
0: So the first time we see him, I think he is at the, the pussycat club or whatever. And he is eyeing Joanna Simpson, who's played by Victoria Prouty, eyeing her. And I'm guessing they already have a relationship at that point. Cause otherwise we don't see the whole negotiation of, come back to my boat, and then go out and find a rickshaw driver, seduce him, bring him back here, and then I will record you two having sex.
4: Yeah, I presume. But then you've also got this whole blackmail plot with her as well, where she's being blackmailed by Team Pleasant and Daniel Green, who we haven't talked about yet. you playing Daniel Green was in – five Martino films and this is the one he plays a bad guy in and they dyed his hair black for this which I love slightly different you know because he's evil but you've got that going on and the fact that she's also secretly working for Madame Moon there's just so much in there
0: I was really confused at first because I think we see the boar being put into the locker, like the whole opening of this movie. I'm not even past the opening of this movie, somewhere, (laughs) because there's just so much cross-cutting that's going on, and it takes place six months before the action of the movie, but you don't necessarily know that other than that letter that Madame Moon ends up sending saying, I've been looking for you for six months. But then later on, she says, I've been watching over you your entire life. Just how much attention Madame Moon is paying, we should
1: discuss later. Yeah, but that might not be scenes. a plot
4: hole. Because, to be fair, you know, if you've got a letter saying that someone had been watching you a whole lot, like, perhaps she was just trying to tone down the whole, I've been watching you. Right. I like, that, I
1: like that theory.
4: Yeah. She seems to be the only person in the film that has any logic
0: there's a lot of voyeurism going on in this movie whether it is the very intentional voyeurism of Donald Pleasant's son, you know, videotaping versus Madame Moon who seems to be involved looking at everything that's happening that's going on.
4: Oh, they love the voyeurism. Everybody's watching everybody. It's it's a nice little touch though, cuz like you said, it then you get this weird editing where you have totally separate scenes interacting with each other. It's quite remarkable, really, given how batshit it is. And there's so many little subplots that they just bring it all together. I mean, even though it takes like, I don't know how many times I've watched it now and I still don't fully understand it, but that's okay.
0: So I guess I was thinking that because we see our main character, Scott Edwards, we see him getting his mail, after he meets Madame Moon, and then he's got a package in the mail from her that has, what is it? The necklace is that the? It's not the stone of evil, obviously. That's in there. Is that the urn? Isn't it a talisman? Okay, it's
4: a talisman. It's something to do with the tiger thing, isn't it? And there's an image
1: or a, a engraving of a woman in the talisman who winds up being Joanna. Oh,
4: it's all in the prophecy, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> And you can't have an evil stone without having a good talisman. There has to be balance.
0: Which manages to save his chest of drawers when his apartment goes up in flames. I want to get one of those and keep it in every inch of my apartment. I'll always be (laughs) safe. There's a lot of fire in this movie as well. Lots.
4: No dummy death, though. There's no dummy death, which is surprising, because Martino did love a good dummy death, but there's someone being run over by a track instead. So Which is kind a, of. I will say, though, he did this one after Hands of Steel. And it would be interesting. I don't know if you guys know the story about Hands of Steel.
0: No, not at all.
4: Right, well, um, it's a great film. And it's the first one I think he did with Daniel Green. He's in this. Well, basically, Claudio Cassinelli, who had worked with... Martino back way back to the 70s on uh, Suspicious Death of a Minor and then went on to do Mountain of the Cannibal God. He is in that film and it it was basically down on his alert and needs work and Martino was like, okay, I'll put you in my film. Died on the set of that film in a helicopter crash. And the thing is, he didn't even need to be in the helicopter. It was a, a shot where the helicopter goes under this bridge and... Casanelli had begged to go in there because he wanted something to tell his kids. He was like kind of showing off and stuff. And Martino was like, I don't think it's a good idea. And he's like, Oh, you know, let me go. So he does, dies on the set. And after that, Martino ca- continued to make action films, but he was much more reserved in the way of stunts. It like deeply affected him. I mean, it wasn't his fault at all. It was just one of those things, but it really affected him. And so it makes me wonder, I mean, American Tiger's pretty batshit, but how much more batshit it would have been. Because he tried to avoid stunts and things after that. It was just so paranoid of something happening. The, I mean, there are, there's fire, there's boats being set on fire, and there's reef tops fights and everything but it is slightly more restrained to something than say hands of steel and that was the reason so it is it, it's, it's really unfortunate and then if you think if that hadn't happened what you would have done with american tiger
1: i did not know that story that that's so tragic I'm so
4: it is sad. it's really sad. so really good friends and Casanelli was such a great actor as well it was just one of those things and no one was to blame and you know, if he had go- the fact that he didn't even need to be in there, it just makes it even worse. He'd just been offered a role on a film in France as well, and so was going to leave early. They got all his things wrapped up so he could go, and it might have kick-started his career again, but unfortunately that happened. It's just really sad.
0: I did remember reading that in your book, I just wasn't sure which film that was on.
4: Yeah, Hands of Steel, because he did a number of these kind of American, they were supposed to be Americanized, hence the Martin Dolman credit. That's what he called himself. Trying to go for this sort of American market, which was something that you always found frustrating as well, because in the 80s you had the rise of the blockbuster, and he could never compete with that in terms of budget, which which was something that always frustrated him. But he loved filming in America, though. Hence why he made so many there, I think. Well,
0: it seems like uh, Mitch Gaylord kind of got to start with an Italian director as well, um, Albert Magnoli. But he was much more of an American, uh, uh, an Italian-American director.
4: Yeah, I've not seen other, any other Mitch Gaylord films, which I know he didn't seem to make many. But wasn't he an Olympic athlete or he something? He was.
0: <laughs> <like> gold medalist.
4: <laughs> gold medalist to American Tiger.
0: Mitch Gaylord was first thrilled the world in 1984 when he led the United States Olympics gymnastic team to its gold medal victory. Mitch holds the distinction for, of being the first gymnast in American history to score a perfect 10. Mitch went on to capture a silver medal for vaulting and two bronze medals for rings and parallel bars.
4: That's just as
0: bonkers as American Tiger, really. So yeah, they saw him in the 84 Olympics, and then by 85, he was making American Anthem. Or, sorry, 86.
4: My film career is off to a start, and then he kind of... (laughs) Martino doesn't really say anything in his book about how he found him. Like He talks a lot about Daniel Green, because basically he goes off to America. He finds in America there's all these damn union rules, which are frustrating to him, because, of course, in Italy they just didn't give a shit and so he found daniel green because daniel green wasn't a sag actor and he basically (laughs) and he looked the part he said he kind of looked he had that look action 80s action hero look but he just doesn't even say anything about how he met mitch gaylord or you know anything about him being in the olympics or anything he's just like yeah i auditioned him that's it
1: I read an interview – I found an interview with uh, Mitch Gaylord after American Anthem came out, and he was saying he wanted to do roles that were not e- exploitive of his athletic ability and didn't want to always be in gymnastics. So whereas American Anthem had lots of gymnastics, like half the movie is just filming people doing gymnastics and it, they seem very, very talented, and it's pretty remarkable. This does not have gymnastics so much, so maybe this is more the direction he wanted to go in
4: was still very physical orientated though isn't
1: it yeah, I love seeing him climb down in the
0: the garage at during that chase scene right yeah, that like Guggenheim Museum garage did Frank Lloyd Wright design that as well I think um, so yeah, it's one of the lesser known Frank Lloyd Wright designs yeah Daniel Green he plays a heavy really well because I'm not really familiar with his work um, as in anything really, except maybe like um, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. But
4: yeah, that's probably what he's most known for. To like non-Italian cult fans, is he? Was, I should have said that he's in that, which is basically his his biggest film role. And outside of that, he did a lot of these films for Martino, but he does, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but his career just, he's still around. He seems to just have very small parts in things.
1: He's in Green, Green Book. Best picture winning Oscar Green Book. Yeah, I think he's in, I looked in his filmography, he's in, he must be friends with the Farrelly brothers, because he's in yes,
4: a Yes, but in little roles, he's got like little kind of cameo roles for them. I tried to get a hold of him when I did my book and he doesn't seem to have an agent or anything. I just just hit a brick wall with him, but I would have loved to have talked to him about how all the films that he did with Martino. And they're all really interesting. American Tiger's possibly my favourite and Hands of Steel, which is like there's the Terminator rip off, Hands of Steel. There's the Rocky rip-off, the opponent. <laughs> Like, And then he did this other one after The Condor, which is just very strange. He plays like a journalist in it He's sort of off on this. a smart mouth journalist. He sort of pisses all these politicians off back in America. So he gets sent off to South America on some mission there. And then Malda, Africa, 1990, which is the last one, which isn't – that's probably the weakest. American Tiger and Hands of Steel, the two best, though. So. I liked
1: I liked the the condor film. I that I, was entertaining.
4: Oh, it's good. It's it's fun. It's not. It's, I don't think it's as good as Hands of Steel. And I think because he's Certainly. not playing a kind of fantastical character, he's just more like a journalist in that. Although he's a bit of an anarchist as well. He's a bit of a punk rocker.
1: He's haunted because he likes to like he like faked a photograph early in his career.
4: That's it. And then he comes back it, like that. Co- He's basically like a journalist who will just do whatever to get his story. He's like a bit of a maverick.
1: I like Daniel Green. He's charming. Ian he Martino should team up for another movie. I
0: would be on board.
4: I would to see now, though.
0: <laughs> I don't care. He looks like a very distinguished older gentleman. I ran into a brick wall when I was trying to get a hold of Mitch Gaylord. Uh, he is one of the two founders of the LaGree Studio, uh established 2014 in Austin, Texas. So I wrote to their contact form, and his wife, Victoria, got back to me. And so I was like, okay, yeah, I'm looking for Mitchell Gaylord. And she writes back with, do you mean Mitch Gaylord? Like, there's a difference? <laughs> well, why do you want to interview him about that movie? And I was just like, um, well, I'm, you know, doing this episode and blah, blah, blah. And, and she writes back and she says, yes, he is my husband. I was like, okay, great. I'd love to get 20 minutes of his time to talk to him about his work on this. No response whatsoever. So I'm like,
4: Oh, shame on you, Mitch Gaylord.
0: Well, it's really, it's Victoria's fault. I think (laughs) she's probably being very protective of her husband.
4: You know, we love that film. I hope you impress that on her. You know that we love that film. We don't just want to laugh at him.
0: I mean, it is a very funny film, but it's not like we're laughing at the people that are in it. It's it's
1: a magnificent movie. It's it's really incredible, very unique. You know, Kat, as you have said, within Martino's body of work, it's one of his most impressive and distinctive movies.
4: And it's it's fun, And, and that's the thing I love about Martino is almost everything that he did has this amazing spirit of fun and entertainment in it. I mean, throughout his entire filmography, I don't think I found anything that I'd consider boring. I mean, he really knew how to entertain people. Whatever genre he was working in, he'd really go all on out to just throw in these crazy thing it was all just really interesting he did I think around the same time as this Casablanca Express which was his other Donald film Donald Pleasants, John Surround Jason fucking Connery it's all set in morocco and there's a plot to it's set in world war 2 as a plot to kidnap winston churchill it's got the world's worst winston churchill lookalike in it He's so bad that you only ever see him out of focus it's just but it's so much fun i mean the Donald train
1: is, siege is in, is incredible
4: oh it's just so much fun you just think how are these people there in morocco making this film but whatever <laughs> I'll take that. I mean everything he did was just really, really fun. Even up to his later films, things like Mozart is a murderer, which he did in nineteen ninety-nine, which is like a TV giallo, I guess. Still really entertaining. And I think you know, I think Martino wanted people to laugh with the film or be excited and but you know, he wanted that reaction from people. I think he has a tendency to be associated with the Jarrow, and he only really made five proper or true Jarrow films. People tend to think of him as rather serious, but he made over 25 comedy films and has a great sense of humour, which I think comes through in, in this film, out of all his action films, the most.
1: Can okay, you make the, I think it's a really great point in your book, that Martino's films also aren't afraid to sort of, you know, change either the formula or the genre, um, you know, for instance, like death of a suspicious minor, you know, as lots of moments of really unexpected comedy that are really. Successful.
4: Yeah. I mean, he, he just didn't, Really stick to form. even his Jallo films are not formulaic and they're all different from one another. I think that's why he tends to not be con- like in the serious scholar circles because Jallo in the last sort of decade or so has attracted serious film criticism. And it's always Argento because Argento was like an auteur and he uses these things. And of course, that's easy to write about, but with Martino. You know, even looking in these shadow films, they're all different to one another. And he would just stick other genres. Or, like, this is a perfect example. Like, what is it? (laughs) It's got everything in there. It's like a bit of a horror film. There's moments of comedy. There's moments of eroticism. There's, like, the whole action thing. It's just... It's so typically martino he just wouldn't just stick to one thing even his kind of rip-offs things like the opponent so he does rocky but then there's all this extra violence in it and the mafia and all this other crazy stuff so that's one great thing about him is you can never really knew know what to expect if you come to one of his films you think oh it's a jallo, but it's never just a jallo, there's always other all the Colors of the Dark is another perfect example. It's a jarrow, but it's also kind of based on Rosemary's Baby. And, you know, it's got a supernatural angle, and it's a bit gothic.
0: I want to spotlight one of Cullen's favorite characters, who is Sergeant Preston, played by Darren DePaul, who is one of the two main cops who are after poor Scott Edwards because they think that he murdered the Reverend's son, and then also murdered his own roommate. We haven't even talked about the roommate, who's just there in the one location again.
4: <laughs> Weird I, roommate. With the cast.
0: I feel kind of bad for the roommate. Oh, I definitely do.
4: I don't know. He just sits around the flat. He's on the phone all the time. He's got Scott doing his rickshaw. Cause that's the other thing. It's not actually his rickshaw job, is it? It's the roommate's, but the roommate's broken his leg.
1: Because of the cobra that Madame Moon... <laughs> No sense. Everyone thinks he was drunk riding the rickshaw. He says, I saw a cobra. I tried to avoid it. I got injured. No one believes him. And he comes to a very bad end, all because he happens to be Scott's roommate. I would not answer Scott's ad on Craigslist to be his roommate.
0: I would answer his misconnections ad, though. But yeah, let's talk about Sergeant Preston and Lieutenant Morgan, who are the poor, hapless cops that are involved in this case that involves so much mysticism. And luckily, Sergeant Preston is a big believer in his horoscope.
4: They're so rubbish, those cops, though. them. One of
0: my favorite
1: scenes between the two of them, it's sort of like toward like two-thirds of the way through the movie when things are getting really crazy. The lieutenant says nothing makes any sense. And Sergeant Preston goes, for example, <laughs> and back and forth, listing all the things that don't make any sense in the movie. And it's just a wonderful, like it's almost kind of like self-aware. Um, and I, I totally empathize with them.
0: This does not make any sense. And they're trying to piece it together just like us. And this guy that played him is, Darren DePaul, he is still acting and he's doing just a ton of voiceover work these days. And he also does a ton of video game voiceover work.
4: Oh, you should have asked him about it.
0: Colin, you actually tracked him down on Facebook. Yeah, I haven't reached, I found him like
1: yesterday, like late afternoon. I didn't have time to shoot him a message. Consider me a fan. And he does include uh, this movie on his website and his uh, filmography That is key. There's my selected filmography for all the different types of projects, and this is his first movie.
4: Unlike Nicole Kidman, who got one of her early starts with Martino.
0: Which one was that?
4: I tried so hard to track this film down. It's called um, Australian in Rome. It's a romantic comedy with a very young Nicole Kidman in, but you can find about, for some reason... There's a random first 10 minutes of it on YouTube, but I could not find the rest of the film because I was starting to see it. I mean, the synopsis, I found like old Italian reviews of it that basically say it's just kind of like a romantic comedy. I think it might have even been made for TV because around this time, Martina was making a lot of stuff for Italian TV as well. I think she likes to forget that part in her career.
0: Well, maybe I'll I'll see if I can reach out to Darren DePaul because this episode is one without any interviews, unfortunately. The Sergio Martino, did you get to talk to him for your book?
4: No, unfortunately, not. I mean, we were trying to set up an interview for ages, and I think his wife was um well. Uh, I had a translator in place, and we just try and get this date together, and it just didn't happen. And then I had my deadline with Arrow as well so i couldn't get any more time so we had to just let it go so what i did was just translate large parts of his autobiography which was a pain in the ass and i had two other people helping me with just to make sure the translations were okay i mean cause his autobiography is absolutely brilliant I, I really wish somebody would you know i know they fab press have just done argentos haven't they somebody would translate that and put it out in english because it's just so good all the stuff all just talks about his whole life in film which basically his whole life because his grandfather was like an italian pioneer and ero so his whole life was cinema and even up until very recently i mean i think he just hit 80 or he's in his 80s now he's not doesn't seem to be directing now but up until recently he was
0: I wonder what his command of the English language is, though, since he directed so many English actors.
4: Not well okay. at all. Yeah, no. He And I have seen interviews he's done in English and not not particularly well. So it would about to have actually been an, an Italian interview. I really wanted to ask him about his action films and his comedies. Because it's something he never seems to get asked about in interviews. It's always about the Jallo films. And occasionally be asked about the action films, and there are some old interviews of him. But and he really enjoyed that because his, the people that he was looking at, the people that he admired, were like Sam Peckinpah and Spielberg. That was who he admired in cinema. You know, he he so. He really loved kind of doing this action stuff, I think, but was just frustrated by the fact that he didn't get the funding or the budget. Real
0: quick, before I forget, I want to say that I also downloaded this movie and have it on my Plex server, and Plex likes to pick random images and put those up as like a screen saver. And that screen that comes up is that bizarro image of Donald Pleasance wearing the wig and what looks like a boogie boy type of mask. Just so strange. <laughs> that scene is horrifying.
4: I have a note about levels. it. Donald is basically strangling a nude, very young, nubile Moon, and I And I bet he enjoyed that scene.
1: <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> he's
4: so into it. And he's got that weird makeup on. I mean, I really love the fact that Donald presents. You know, went to RADA, for fuck's sake. He started out on the stage doing Pinter, you know, things like The Caretaker alongside Alan Bates. You know, real British theatre royalty. At this stage in his career, you know, getting past Halloween, then he goes on and he does things like Phenomena. By the time you get to the late eighties, he just does not give a shit what he's in. it's <laughs> just some great credit, like I said, Casablanca Express is another one he just but he still had that absolute same conviction to doing this as he did to Pinter. He's just so into that scene, and the look on his face is amazing
1: it looks like he is giving his all in like embodying that character and especially uh, the the final scene with him at the movie's climax. You know, he he is incredible. I don't want to give away what's happening in that scene,
0: but I want Uh, to talk about it.
1: Mike, that's Mike and Cat, You can make that decision with how much we reveal. (laughs) We've revealed quite a bit so far.
0: We have, but like I said, I think we've been clarifying things, hopefully rather than obfuscating things because this movie needs help as far as your first time viewer can get lost in here pretty easily i know i did i did do it it's it's it was kind of a wonderful sort of you know being
1: lost and constantly being surprised and not being able to predict what was going to happen next
0: the thing that you said though cat about his movies not being boring i mean that is that's death to me for a movie is a boring movie. And this movie's anything but boring because it does keep you guessing, keep you wondering what's going on, what's going to happen throughout this entire thing.
4: Well, it's wonderful. I mean, even knowing the genre, you just really don't know what to expect. Like people like you and Cullen come into this, knowing these sort of genres are surprised by it. And that's a rare thing to do. I think because, you know, there's so many films that become derivative of their genres.
1: I have a great point, Kat, and I, I, I should say if we're talking about surprises in this movie in the way it can sort of shift tones, Scott's nightmare that begins, you know, it's sort of Jason has his head like in a toilet, there's like the bloody rag now, <laughs> and it becomes this weird sort of zombie attack and there's like a first-person camera, and it's got to be less than a minute and it's just like it suddenly becomes a horror movie for just that a little bit of time
4: he does that actually martino does that in sex with a smile which is like is that like one of his anthology comedies from the 70s where you've got a segment in that where a girlfriend he is at the cinema with her boyfriend, watching a horror film, and then imagines herself in that film, and it becomes, for like a minute and a half, a hammer horror film. Ooh.
3: Just
4: typical Martino. You know, he seemed like such a calm guy, you know, on the outside, but his mind must have been. He did actually, I wanted to say, actually, he worked on the screenplay. One of the, I mean, often in screenplays, there'd be so many credits on them. I'd be like five, six people credited. Martino always credited himself with the original stories ideas. Although Ernesto Gastaldi worked with him for a long time, not on this. Sort of said no, they were my scripts, and Martino's always like no, they were mine. Uh, Sarrò Scavolini, uh, who'd worked with him very early on, or like right back from when uh, Luciano, who was Sergio's brother. And Sergio were, like, working more on the production end before Marti, uh, Sergio was directing. On Romolo Guerreri's uh, Western, $10,000 for a massacre, which does <laughs> seem very much by today's standards. But he did, he worked on things like, uh, you know, a few of his key jallos like All the Colors of the Dark, Your Vice is a Lot Ring. And did a case of Scorpion's Tale. And then a long, long periods where they didn't work together. And then he comes back later on to do a few of these. He's the brother of Romano Scavellini who did Nightmares and a Damaged Brain, which is also a completely bonkers film. So something in the family there, I think. (laughs) That's a film that Tom Savini swore he never worked on, even though there's pictures of him on set. like, actual pictures of him arranging the effects. (laughs) And he was like, oh, it's just there as an advisor. it's like, "Mm, okay. Yeah, loads of Savini-type effects in that one as well. But it's like, okay, Tom. So I lied. I didn't realize
0: that Donald Pleasance does escape from that one set a few times, that he actually enters interacts with Francis in a random apartment. And he actually visits Madame Luna and tries to choke her out again. (laughs) But but thank goodness her Cobra and her cat are there to defend her.
4: And the smoke Uh,
0: machine. Yes. The smoke machine finally drives him away. One of the scenes we didn't
1: talk about was uh, after that very, very strange motel scene between Scott and Joanna, where he walks into the shower with his jeans on. And then it cuts to Madam Moon, you know, with the cat and the cobra, and you can hear Joanna and Scott talking. And then it cuts to them in bed, and the conversation continues, which makes me wonder it's like Madam Moon just like listening in on them having sex? Is she just like sitting in her chair, like hearing all of Scott's encounters?
0: Can she only hear them, or does she get visuals too? I mean, is she like Alexa is what
1: I'm wondering? Is she the original Alexa? Just always there, ready with a cobra
0: and a cat? The strange times that the cat will enter into the actual narrative and be like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm going to distract the, uh, the evil son of Reverend Morton. Cat is everywhere. Can't keep a good cat down. Oh, yeah, you should dive into the water here. Oh, by the way, here's the key for the locker underneath me. Yeah, that cat is just really very busy. I also, one of the things my girlfriend and I were sort
1: of joking about, because we watched Hands of Steel together as well, this fan theory where Daniel Green plays the same character in both movies. Because there's a line in uh, Hands of Steel where he's like, I'm not, or there is no Paco. And it's like, is he like Francis the hitman from American Ninja, the Paco, like pre-cyborg Paco? Even though Panzer Steel came before, it keeps me entertained. I just kept saying Paco over and over when I'm watching American Tiger.
0: Well, I'm amazed, and maybe it was his his cyborg strength that kept him safe at Jonestown. Oh, we didn't even talk about that. (laughs) What a weird throwaway line that is.
1: Oh, my goodness. I had so many questions. I actually started to write some of them down. Let me pull up my notes. Is... You know, Daniel Green's hitman, Francis, is he Jim Jones' son? Is he one of the followers? How did he survive? Did he not take the Kool-Aid? Did he take the Kool-Aid, but he's just that strong? (laughs) What's he in on the whole Kool-Aid thing? Did he kill
4: all those people? It's such a flippant little reference as well from the two cops. It's just one of those things, you're going along thinking everything, you know, the mythology and everything is like pretty batshit, but then they just drop that in there as well, casually.
0: And I like they don't even say Jonestown. They're just like, oh, he survived Guyana 78. I just wanted to add to the conversation that if you guys ever get a chance, you should look up the Japanese VHS cover for American Tiger. It is amazing. So it's basically broken into four quadrants with the name of the movie in between it. Uh, we've got the Snake coming out of Francis's eye in the upper left quadrant. We've got the cat in the upper right. We've got Francis holding his hand in the lower left. And we've got the wife with the gun in the uh, lower right-hand side. So there is no picture of Scott whatsoever except on the back cover. And it is all Francis on the front cover. And it's fantastic.
1: I, I think I want to write some Francis
0: fan fiction. There you go.
4: He's wonderful, though. We haven't really talked about him very much, but he is so, you know, this whole moody backstory and everything, the fact he just turns up being menacing,
1: it's great. There's a scene, we if you all are down, I want to talk about because it totally baffles me. It's when he goes to Joanna's house, knocks on the door, and he picks up the milk carton and just sort of says through the crack when she opens it. <laughs> Let's just say I'm the milkman. It's just a shame about all those missing kids. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know what he's saying. Did he kidnap?
4: Yeah, they kidnapped her yes. kid. That's the whole thing, you know. She's not really this bad because she's a mother fighting for a child, and he's like kidnapped her. I also like the part when he goes to the strip club and she's doing her act, and he's just glaring at her. The audience that's a good scene as well
0: he's very frank booth you know that whole idea of like kidnapping little Donny is and and you know cutting off uh don senior's ear and stuff that's what it reminded me of when they uh, when the kid showed up like three quarters of the way through the movie
4: and um, there isn't enough of him i don't think you know they don't give him enough of the backstory do you know? I want to know about Jonestown. I want to know, you know, why is he here kidnapping kids for Donald Pleasant? She said think he would have had enough of the whole cult thing,
0: right? And that he calls Donald Pleasant's master. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Did Donald <laughs> Pleasant ever write a memoir? Because I would love to hear his comments
1: about wrestling with a cobra and a cat.
4: Yeah, but I don't know if time. he did. I don't know if he did. He's so prolific as well. I mean, imagine approaching a, a project like that, the films of Donald Pleasant, which I wish someone would do.
1: I just started going through his filmography after rewatching this, trying to pick out, you know, not just one, but a few favorites. And it is hard. He made yeah. some really incredible and very diverse types of movies. Uh, so it Hell is a City? Val Guest Noir? Yeah. And I love the Hallelujah Trail where he's like some like whiskey oracle who's trying to prevent this town from going dry. So they wind up getting Burt Lancaster to escort a shipment of whiskey.
4: Oh, he's in so much stuff and, he, and worked like almost up until his death, didn't he? And like I said, he just really didn't give a shit what he was in and which just seemed to especially working with the Italian guys, you know. And just really obviously got into each role because he's so good here, is this character. I know that Martino said that he, when he, I know we haven't got to that bit yet, but the climactic scene that he played it like tragicomic when he does his little transformation.
0: We're actually going to be talking about him next week when we cover the Passover plot, where I think he plays Pontius Pilate in it. We talk about a diverse career this guy had.
4: Yeah, you could if you did a whole like Donald Pleasant's podcast, he'd be there for years.
0: Oh yeah, he made he was in two hundred and thirty some titles, I think. That includes the TV stuff that he did, and he was my absolute favorite Columbo villain in "Any Port in the Storm," where he played this very snotty wine connoisseur.
4: Oh, he's so good in that one.
3: This is dreadful. Monsieur, are you... This is dreadful. Don't you realize that a great wine is like a great work of art? It has to be nurtured. It has to be taken care of. You have subjected this port to a temperature in excess of 150 degrees. Such disdain cannot and must not be tolerated. I advise him not to for the check. But, sir, I think that... Uh... This wine has been oxidized by overheating. Where did you keep it? On top of the stove, I assure you, monsieur. Don't you know any delicate wine spoils by being subjected to a rapid change in temperature? Serving this iodine is an insult. So, is there something wrong? Is there something wrong? Everything is wrong. An exciting meal has been ruined by the presence of this liquid filth. Mr. Cassini, it is not our intention. But there will be no check for this table. No, no. Listen, oh, no. no, no, I insist. No, no, no. We I had a very good, good meal. No, come I on. on. I apologize. Oh. I apologize, no. Mr. We Mr. had on. a oh. very oh. good, I oh. good oh. meal. No, no. I must Thank you very much. It's all right. It's all
0: right. Thank you. Thank you. No. Looking no. at his filmography, I'm just like, he has been in so many movies that we've already talked about, like Mr. Freedom, Wake and Fright. I mean, just so many amazing films this guy has been in. Escape from New York and Escape from Witch Mountain. I mean, what a double feature, Right.
4: And considering how he started out as well, I think because he didn't have that kind of snobbery about him. I mean even in things like the actor kindness, I'm trying to think which amicus film it's in, he plays this strange father with his daughter Angela Pleasance, who was also amazing, just didn't do many films. She's great in Jose Laraz's symptoms.
1: Oh, that movie isn't an- I love that film.
4: Yeah, I mean, she's absolutely brilliant as well. I know Angela's still a, still around, but yeah, what a family. And the fact that he just really just didn't have this kind of, you know, because there is that whole British theatre, you know, consider them above certain things, but that certainly wasn't Donald. I think if the role was interesting, he'd do it. He just didn't care.
0: So yeah, let's talk about that ending. I do want to talk about that, because yeah you mentioned the way that he approached it, which I was surprised by the way that it went down. I thought that it would go again a different way because we've got this Boar symbology going on this through this film the the statue that he stole from Madame Moon that Scott gets back and then and manages to turn her back into a beautiful young woman, and then that plays also into the demise of donald pleasance it's it's a strange death that he undergoes
4: but it turns into a horror film with full gore effects which is just great and then martino said that he wanted to do something with a wind machine in this uh, the translation from his book which wasn't great it was supposed to have some sort of big wind machine scene that they couldn't pull off so, they decided to have Donald do the weird voice and put it in in post production, which works because it's quite kind of menacing. Because he's up on this thing giving his speech um, and starts doing a bit of a. I was trying to think, when does Nicholas Rogue's The Witches come out? Was that the same year as this or just after? Is that 91? It's not saying that Rogue was (laughs) influenced by this.
2: That was nineteen
0: ninety.
4: And this one was what?
0: 89, I think.
4: Yeah, well, you never know. He could have been watching Martino films, but it's got that whole transformation, someone turning into an animal and doing the mannerisms and the noises and stuff before they actually transform. Kind of reminded me the end of The Witches.
0: It reminded me of Swamp Thing a lot. And when his wife ends up shooting him.
4: Yeah, I and that as well. <laughs>
0: I didn't see that coming. <laughs>
2: it's
4: not enough to turn him into a pig. You have to have the crazy sort of neurotic wife come out of nowhere and shoot him as well. She was great. <laughs> it's just like, I've had enough of you. She's like barely a character. So where did you come from? Okay.
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole untold story right there. She seems to have a lot of pent up aggression and had been traumatized by her husband for a long time I mean living with you know Satan probably
4: <laughs> Satan who
1: you know moonlights as a televangelist
4: are they supposed to be immortal as well that was the other thing I couldn't I've never been able to grasp that whole scene of it was a long time ago. You know, th- if they supposed to have been around for centuries? Or. Maybe,
1: maybe you need the stone or the urn to be immortal? Because once it's taken away from Madame Moon, she goes from being young to very old. So maybe that's like when it gets taken away, time catches up with you.
4: Donald's on this one. He's supposed to have had the stone.
1: That's a good point.
4: It makes sense. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm put it on again. It's all queued up on Amazon. <laughs>
4: Are they are they immortal? You know what? It's it kind of got that thing about it. You know that they've been dueling for centuries. Yes, again, not really explained. She just says it was a long time ago. That could mean anything.
0: Well, yeah, I think it's they've been dueling for centuries, and then they had to wait until the what is the whole nine 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 level thing of the year of the tiger. But I love how it's like, oh, well, to, to the Chinese, we're upside down. And he flips the, the chalkboard around. It's like, what?
4: Yeah, but it's maximum power for the year of the tiger.
0: Right. <laughs> if you couldn't find it in you, those computers, you
1: have to look in the book that Sergeant Preston has, which he is willing to loan out, but the Senate doesn't want to
0: borrow it.
2: So oh, those two, I so those two
0: that. are <laughs> common goals together. Oh, yeah. So, okay how did you end up writing a book about Martina? What, what was the – did you get hired to
4: do that, or did you offer to do that? I offered, I mean, because of films like American Tiger. Uh, I mean, well, Arrow asked me, you know, if I wanted to pitch for their book thing, and they were like, you know, you can do a film or maybe a director. I should say at this point, it's not a massive book. I'd love to expand it. They're supposed to be kind of introductory books, on subjects, so it's quite limited in scope. So I kind of took it on, not realising how big the project could be. And, you know, I would have loved to have expanded it, tried to get more interviews, but it's just the room wasn't there, unfortunately. So I suggested Sergio Martino purely because it was either going to be Martino or Umberto Lenzi. They're two directors who I don't think get appreciated enough for the other genres that they worked. So they're both journeymen, they both kind of get. Oh, Lindsay always gets associated with his cannibal films now, and you know when way back then he was doing historical epics and period pieces and stuff and Martino very much the same kind of just very very interesting I was really into his sex comedies anyway which I rarely meet people that have even seen them and they're just so good that I just thought I really want to go into this and and try and encourage people to watch his films that aren't the Jallo ones that was kind of my mission when I wrote it
0: I am not that familiar with Italian comedies because whenever I've tried to get into Italian comedies, they've just been the most exorable things I've ever seen in my life. So, what's a good one to start with with him?
4: With uh, so with Martino, I definitely recommend Giovanna Thai, which he claims inspired Pretty Woman. Which I don't know. <laughs> it's basically Edwidge Fennec is she plays the tart with a heart of gold. She's hired by this guy. Is a part of a blackmail plot though. She's like a honey trap, and she looks. She's got like the face of an angel. But the joke, the ongoing joke is every time she opens her mouth, she's she swears like a sailor it all takes place on this train and there's people going in the wrong rooms and, and Fenwick was just so good comedy when I mean, she gets remembered for the giallo but she did many, many more comedies than she did um, so I definitely recommend that one because it's an absolute hoot and my favourite is Cream Horn where she's got this, uh, she's an opera singer who's being stalked by uh, a overprotective boyfriend um, but Italian comedies, I think they're they're kind of an acquired taste because they've got all this custom and stuff in them. They're worth watching for cult film fans, only because you do get people like Edward Trenner, Barbara Boucher, Thomas Millian ends up in quite a few George Hilton, you know all these people that are associated with other genres turn up in these sex comedies, which are all just totally, they're not sleazy or anything, they're quite tame really, when you think think sex comedies, considering what was being made later on in the 80s in Italy and Spain. You know, there's usually a little bit of nudity in them.
0: Yeah, I don't understand, because you said, like, it's a short book, and you've actually gotten criticized on Amazon because it's a short book, and it's like... It
4: was too small, but the guy didn't read it. It just
0: looked too small. (laughs) Sent it back
4: so angry
0: <laughs> do you look at page counts i mean
4: yeah, it's on the listing.
0: <laughs> and you pack a lot into their
1: book Kat.
4: i tried I, I spent so i spent at least six months just heavily researching it and there was a lot of stuff i couldn't put in just because of the word count. I had to. that was the most difficult thing deciding what to cut you know, I really tried, I tried my best to say something that hadn't been said before. Like, I tracked down sex comedies that have never even been fan I translated his autobiography, I got his Bruce Lee story, which hasn't really been told very often. Yeah. The fact that he was going to make a film with Bruce Lee, produced by Carlo Ponte in the 70s and Bruce Lee's people wanted too much money and Ponty were just like nope but Bruce Lee really wanted to do it because he wanted to go to Italy so you know but that means nothing if the book looks too small (laughs) right
1: (laughs) it's a fabulous book cat and it's you know perspectives movies that are not talked about anywhere else to my knowledge it's very original it's um, I, you know where else are you going to read about Martino and most of these movies? Like as you said, they're all very overlooked. He's an overlooked director. I wish I had known about. I wish this book existed years ago when I started discovering his movies. And now that I've read it, there's a heck of a lot more of his stuff I really need to track down.
4: Oh, well, that was the bit that made it worth it. Apart from not only person on Amazon, so many people have got in touch with me to say that they have watched. The sex comedies, or they have watched something like American Tiger because they read about it in the book. So, you know, for the few only people, it was worth it for that. It was worth it just for the fact that people have said, "Oh, you know, I've got to even own a long thigh." I mean, a lot of his films are unavailable. They're available, you know, in the grey areas of the internet. A lot of them not even served which is a shame. But um, I even covered his series, which was made around this time, Private to Staliti Pravati*, which is one of the best things he made of Edward. She co-produced it. And as far as I know, it was shown here in the UK on Channel 4 back in the early millennium with Serbs. So I have like a video recording of it. I've yet to meet another English speaker who's seen it. With subs it's around with no subs, but um, yeah,
0: see, I was not familiar with Martino other than those jallo names because I really haven't gotten into the Jalo genre that much. It sounds like Colin, you have definitely gone into that a lot more than I have, yeah, a few years ago, um, I just started
1: watching some of those and just took a deep dive. And there's some really fascinating movies. And I do love this sort of crossover from genre to genre with some of those directors, the way they jump into Westerns. And Martino also made a couple spaghetti Westerns that Kat talks about in her book.
0: All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview
3: for next week's show. The prophet Jeremiah writes that at this time a man will come, a descendant of the house of David, a king Who will lift up his fallen people, return them to the laws of God, and lead them, and through them, all men, to the way of peace. I am from the house of David. The prophecies cry out to me, and I accept their calling. I believe I am this promised one. The Messiah walks among us. If you must kill kill only the weak. Are you the one? This year, the Passover feast falls on the Sabbath. I cannot. Are you the king of the Jews? I will declare myself king. And if it fails, then there is another part to my plan. On Thursday evening, Judah will betray me and I will be arrested. Pilate is already impatient. He feels an insurrection, so the trial will be held on Friday morning. No Jew was left on the cross during the Sabbath, so if the Romans believe I am dead, I will be taken down before the sunset comes and the Sabbath begins. I will survive. But I ask you to help me feign death, Yaakov. Rusty spikes pounded into your hands and feet. True pain, and there's nothing you can do to prepare yourself for it some of you call me your messiah do you say you are yes i do
0: That's right. We'll be back next week with a special episode for Easter, all about the Passover plot. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Cullen and Cat. Cullen, what is the latest with you, sir?
1: Doing a little bit of writing, trying to write some new songs. I kind of want to move on from some of the older ones. I was working for a while. I was writing country songs, and they're just a little too sad for my taste right now. Trying to write some happier ones. I did a, a piece of Western flash fiction for a book that. Scott Harris edited and put together called Bourbon and a Good Cigar. I think it's 52, 51 or 52 stories where each one of them involves bourbon and a good cigar.
0: That sounds like a Tom Waits song waiting to happen. Oh my goodness, you are totally right. So just to be clear, you said flash fiction and not slash fiction. Correct. It's okay. just a couple pages because it could have gone a whole different way. What is slash fiction, by the way? I do not know what that is. Slash fiction is a uh, subgenre of fiction, which is usually uh, categorized along the lines of fan fiction. But it is where people write stories where uh, well-known characters end up having sex, usually same-sex pairings. Oh. So you'll see a lot of things when it comes to Kirk and Spock having sex. That's why I wanted to clarify.
1: Yeah, that's uh, important clarification. Um, There are no well-known Western personalities having sex in this story.
0: I'm your huckleberry. The story is very PG. So, Kat, you've always got a lot of irons in the fire. What's keeping you busy these days?
4: Yeah, I just announced my book on Andrzej Zawowski, which I'm working on at the moment. Um, I've done a couple of video essays that have just been announced. So the noir night four, which was directed by Jacques Turner. And also I did my first BFI contribution on Mr. Topaz about the playwright Marcel Pagnol, who wrote the original screenplay for the story. And I've also done commentaries for Kino Lorber's La Prisonnière, which is Clouseau's last film, and The Nightcomers, so all the sadism there. And also, we finally got round to recording an episode of our own podcast, Thoughts of Darkness, on the films of another underrated journeyman on his pornography and exploitation films, John Hayes. And that should have already aired by the time this
0: episode does. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
2: said chop chop to the little rickshaw boy He could hardly move and I became annoyed As he trembled and looked about to fall I cursed my luck and as the rickshaw stall. I said move you nasty little rickshaw boy The little rickshaw boy looked gravely ill